Well, please take your Bibles and turn once again to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, we have for some time now been making our way through this particular Gospel, and we come to Luke chapter 19 this morning. We're going to pick up with verse 41. We're just going to be looking at a few verses this morning, verses 41 through 44. Jesus, as you know, has been making his way to Jerusalem for quite some time. This journey began within the Gospel of Luke back in chapter 9. So um, he's just entering into the city. Last week we saw in the previous passage his triumphal entry. This morning we pick up with verse 41, which says, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you, And surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground. And your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Father, speak to us now through your word. For Christ's sake. Amen. Well, our passage might sound familiar, given what we've been seeing in Jeremiah. Because in Jeremiah, of course, Babylon has been brought down against Judah, and the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. And here, as we listen to the words of Jesus, he's telling the city that Once again, it will be destroyed. There are centuries that have passed in that interval. And yet, God is bringing judgment once again. The passage that we're looking at this morning begins with this phrase, when he approached Jerusalem, the one approaching Jerusalem, of course, is Jesus. And as he came into view of the city, we are told that he wept. This one who approached Jerusalem, this one who wept, was and is not only the man Jesus, but he is the incarnate Son of God. He is God become Man, with all that it means to take on essential humanity. Now, note that I said essential humanity. We know and we understand that there is one very obvious difference, which, uh, or obvious quality, I should say, which Jesus does not share with the rest of, the, of humanity, and that is, of course, sin. But sin is not an essential part of humanity. Humanity was created without sin in the garden. And there is coming a day 
when humanity, redeemed humanity, will again exist without sin. So sin is not an essential part of who we are. But in regard to essential humanity, Jesus became as we are in his incarnation. He was, scripture tells us, a man of sorrow and equated with grief. He would not be sheltered from the grief of this world. He would be a true man in our humble condition. So the eternal God was formed in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He grew up through childhood, through adolescence, into manhood. He had a human brain and the human means of acquiring and retaining knowledge and learning from it. He had human emotions. He had functioning tear ducts. And when he cried, he had to dry his eyes and he needed to wipe his nose. He was not a stoic. He was touched by the griefs and the infirmities of his friends. He is our sympathetic high priest. He is our sympathetic fellow sufferer. He looked forward to meals with his friends. He asked them to pray for him when he was cast down. Jesus had an inner life which included emotion and he was not afraid to expose that to us. He told his friends, my soul is troubled. Before the crucifixion, he acknowledged, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. He wept in grief at the death of his friend Lazarus and Lazarus' sisters as they grieved. He prayed, but he did not just repeat rote prayer. We are told that he offered a prayer and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Hebrews 5.7 So we're being told through the life of Jesus, who came to us for one purpose, to reveal the Father, we're being told through Jesus what the Father is like as well. God The Father is compassionate. He is is as involved in our lives as Jesus. The heart of the Christian gospel is the picture of a God who loves. A God who loves people. A love that wants us. He's got to have us. It is not merely that all good gifts are, 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 are... Sent from heaven above, there is a dynamic and saving love with God that moved him to seek for his people. Billions of us. And to find us. And to hold us. To never let us go. It is a love that is not satisfied until all that he has chosen to set his love upon have come to receive that love. And having poured that love out upon us, it will never leave us again. That's the love of God. He pities us, yes, but more than that, he acts upon that pity and relieves us of our misery. 
He has made up his mind and will to do it. And in Christ, that work is done and finished. This is why he has come to Jerusalem. So here in our passage, Luke tells us that when his long journey to Jerusalem was complete and he stood on a hilltop to see lying before him this magnificent city, he wept over it. He grieved over it. And that grief was not only the grief of his humanity, it was the grief of his incarnate deity. In our text, we see both God and man filled with sadness at the sight of the city. And as Jesus, the God-man, looked upon Jerusalem with grief, we too ought to look upon our towns and cities and states and nation and world and grieve. We ought to see the place that we call home in all of its confusion and need and rebellion and Grieve, because to do so is to reflect the heart of Jesus. In this sense, every Christian ought to be characterized by sorrow and acquainted with grief. But there was something unique about this grieving one, of course, and there is something unique about the city over which he grieved, And we must ask the question then, when God came for a visit, why did he weep? Why is it that Jesus wept over this city? And in our passage this morning, Luke is going to give us three reasons to explain why Jesus wept. And the first is this, you see it there in verse 42. He wept because the people of Jerusalem were ignorant of their need. And what they needed were things that make for peace. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. The Lord Jesus knew Jerusalem well. He had lived 30 years in Nazareth, 70 miles north of Jerusalem, a few days journey for a pilgrim. Three times a year throughout his entire life, he and his family would go and spend a week in Jerusalem at the feasts. And so in a hundred visits to Jerusalem, Christ had gotten to know the city and its people well. During his public ministry, many of the people of Jerusalem had gone out to hear him and to witness his miraculous healing. They had heard his great claims. Before Abraham was, I am. I and my father are one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father but by me. They had heard his great gospel promises in which he declared himself to be the focal point of salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his Only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. They heard him say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
And yet, though they knew, they did not know. Though they listened and saw, and though they surely spent much time discussing these things, they did not know Jesus. They did not give themselves to him. And Jesus knew this. He knew that they had not. Jesus was confronted then with a city whom he loved, but whose people didn't want him as their Lord. They had heard so much. They had seen the most extraordinary things that anybody living on this planet had ever seen or heard, but they were not satisfied. They, they, they couldn't say, now, if someone would come back from the dead, I believe, because he had raised at least three people that we know of, and they still didn't believe. And Jesus wept. He wept, and he said, if you had known in this day even you, the things which make for peace. It's all a quest for peace, isn't it? The drugs, the drunkenness, the serial relationships, the pornography, the quest for money, the pursuit of power. It's all a quest for peace. I don't have it. Maybe this will be the way to obtain it. But there is no peace for the wicked. Augustine wrote in his confessions that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. God had sent his son into the world as the one mediator between him and us. He came into the world to show us the living God and to live the life that we should live but cannot. He took on humanity so he could be our mediator, our representative, our substitute. He became the Lamb of God and he made atonement for our guilt through his death on the cross. He died in our place. God dealt With him as we ourselves deserve to be dealt with. And as we shall be dealt with if we reject the one whom the Father has sent. If we reject him as our mediator and as our substitute, we will pay our own price for sin. But through the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, there can be forgiveness for our sin. We receive mercy from God because Jesus has received justice from God. He is our substitute. It was justice not for his own sin, for he had none, but for our sin. It was our guilt for which he freely bore the penalty in his own body on the cross. Judgment for Jesus... Pardon for us if we would but trust in him. This is God's way of peace. It is a costly way. But the bill is paid by God himself. And the work is done by Christ. It is costly, but it costs us nothing. It is costly, but it is a cost that the Father paid. 
To us, there is no cost but the cost of discipleship. The redemption itself is free. It is peace with God, which we could not and did not buy, but which Christ purchased for us. He paid the price. He bought it. It was not earned by our doings, but by the doings of Christ. How do we get this peace? We get this peace by entrusting ourselves entirely and wholly in this life to Jesus. And when we stand to give an account to God, we plead Christ and Christ alone. Forever and ever in heaven, we plead our only entitlement of being there is because of Christ. It's not by our loving that we get peace, because our love is always imperfect. It's not by our good works, because they're all mixed up with sin. It comes only through faith in Christ, apart from any work that we think we have to offer. There is no other way. It's not baptism. It's not some kind of confirmation. It's not by a man in a robe putting his hands upon our heads. It's not by communion. It's not by church membership. It is only and ever through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he has done. By his righteous life. And his atoning death. And all we do is say, yes, I trust Christ. I trust Jesus. Paul put it this way. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. What makes for peace? Jesus makes for peace. This is God's way. Perfect peace comes through trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once you place your trust in Christ alone, that peace is yours. We who have trusted Christ have peace because God is not angry with us. We have peace because we have no fear of death and hell. We have peace because God promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. We have peace because he has promised to supply all that we need. We have peace because when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he has promised to be there with us. We have peace because an angry God has become a loving father. And it is all through trusting and following and obeying Jesus Christ. This is why Christ said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. But if you reject him, there is no peace. None of those things I've just mentioned are true for those who will reject the offer of God's grace in Jesus Christ. There is only the ceaseless tramping of one club to one bar after another, night after night. Only the endless chain of sexual partners that never satisfy. Only the constant effort to find some temporary escape in drugs or work or whatever your diversion of choice might be. 
but there is no peace. You will try whatever you can to fill the emptiness inside, but Augustine was right. That empty space will remain empty until it is filled with Jesus. If like the people of Jerusalem, these things have been hidden from your eyes, then it is my fervent prayer for you today that this will be the day when your eyes will be opened to the truth. That Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And only in knowing Jesus can one know true peace. But that was not the only reason that Jesus wept as he approached Jerusalem that day. And their need of peace was not the only thing that the people of Jerusalem were ignorant of. They were also ignorant of what was to come. Verse 43 says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. They were ignorant of what was to come, and what was to come was destruction. And from the time of the Tower of Babel, man has always attempted to bring heaven down to earth. Because man is created in the image of God, and because there are certain truths which we know intrinsically, because God has placed that knowledge within us, even though we might suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness, Man has always, it seems, had a vision of the restoration. Man knows there is something wrong and has this impulse to try to make it right by himself. There's a faint, distant memory of what once was. And a blurry, unfocused hope of what one day will be. The problem, of course, comes when man attempts to usher in this utopian vision for himself. We have seen over and over again how such attempts end. In the previous century, we saw more than 100 million people killed in the attempt to bring about a Marxist or socialist utopia. Communism, Nazism, Maoism, radical Islam, the thing they all have in common is the belief that they will be the ones to create paradise on earth. One might think we would have learned by now. And yet... Here we are, once again, listening to voices telling us that we'll get it right the next time. There were utopias in the first century. There were visions that people had of bringing about paradise. In fact, there were many who wanted to enlist Jesus into their utopian vision. 
There were many who desired to make Jesus the focal point of that vision. They were very disappointed when they saw Jesus come riding along on a donkey. That was not the plan that they had. They wanted to put him on a a strong white war horse. They wanted Jesus to be the Messiah King who would lead the armies of Israel against Rome and thereby usher in the restoration of the Davidic kingdom, Israel's utopia. But here's the problem. Those utopian visions only bring destruction. And Jesus wept because that was exactly what was going to happen to Jerusalem. The days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. And this was fulfilled to the letter a generation later in A.D. 70. Rome comes down against Jerusalem and lays siege to the city, putting up a barricade, surrounding, hemming them in on every side. They destroyed the walls of the city. They destroyed the temple. They leveled it to the ground. The people of Jerusalem were trapped within that siege. When you read the account of that siege of Jerusalem, written by Josephus, first century Jewish historian, it is horrifying. Your children within you. Children were slaughtered. Babies cannibalized. Because there was no food left as a result of the siege. Everything Jesus speaks of here came about exactly as he says. No bright tomorrow, no driving out the Roman armies and the Messiah reigning over Israel and the world, nothing like it. Simply the most horrific scenes and a new slavery for the people. Jerusalem, no more. Pagan Rome, triumphant. That's not the plan. That's not the vision. And yet that's what occurred. And we're reminded, put not your hopes in chariots, says the psalmist. Put not your hopes in princes. That's what Jerusalem had done. They had put their hope in a military, in in political solutions, and they were sorely disappointed. Destruction has and will come at the hands of man, but utopia will never come at the hands of man. Utopia will come only from the hand of Almighty God in his time. We call it the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And it's something that no human being has the power to bring about. Man cannot bring utopia, but he can bring destruction. 
God, however, has promised to bring both destruction and utopia. He has promised to destroy the world before he recreates it as that place in which he will dwell eternally with his people. But it is not only this world which God will one day bring to destruction. It is also the souls of men who will not bow the knee before him. They too will be destroyed. Just as Jerusalem was destroyed by their rejection of the Messiah, so too men and women will be destroyed who reject the Savior. So too will they be destroyed who place their hope in those things which cannot bring peace. So too will they be destroyed who look for utopia by the means of man. So too will they be destroyed who live wasted lives pursuing only money and pleasure and ease. Friends, destruction is coming. And it's coming on both a global and a personal scale. And if you find yourself outside of Christ, that destruction is coming for you. There is but one escape and his name is Jesus This same Jesus who wept over Jerusalem now weeps over you. He assures us in his word that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Will you not turn and live? Will you not turn from your empty hopes and dreams of utopia? Will you not turn from your trust in political parties and philosophies and systems? Will you not turn from your endless pursuit of those things that can never bring you peace? Those things that can never bring you contentment? Will you turn from all that is not Christ? Whatever is not Christ can only bring destruction. And the weeping Savior now calls upon you to turn and live. And there is yet another reason for Jesus weeping. He wept because of yet one more thing of which the city was ignorant. Just as they were ignorant of what was to come, they were also ignorant of what had already come. You did not Recognize the time of your visitation. God had told them that he would come. And now he had. And they did not recognize him and they did not receive him. God had come to visit. And they slammed the door in his face. God had told them that he would come back in Genesis when immediately following the fall he told us that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. Now he had come. We were told that one would come who would be a greater prophet even than Moses and that one had now come. David told us that one was coming who would be greater than he and who would establish his kingdom, but first he would suffer and he would die, but his body would not be left to decay. He would be raised. Now that one has come 
The prophets told us that the suffering servant would come and he would bear our sin upon himself. By his stripes we would be healed. Now he has come. Jesus came to Israel and they did not know him and they did not receive him. Jesus came and they turned him away. Jesus came and they turned away from him. Jesus came offering peace and joy and eternal life and they rejected him. And they spat upon him and they beat him and they crucified him. And Jesus comes now to you. Perhaps he has come to you many times before. Whenever you have heard the gospel, Jesus has come to you. And as I proclaim the gospel to you, Jesus is coming to you. As I stand in this pulpit proclaiming the gospel, it is the voice of Jesus that you hear in his word. And he is saying, come, turn from the vain things of this life which you have so often pursued. Come and live. Come and escape destruction. Come and I will receive you. Come and I will give you abundant life. Come and I will give you eternal life. Why would you die? Why would you waste your life on things that do not satisfy when I can give you everything? Why would you live your life in frustration and emptiness when you can have peace? Rather, come to me, Jesus says. I'm the one who makes for peace. Come to me, for I am the source of all joy. Come to me, for I am the Redeemer. Come to me, for only I can give you new life. Come to me, for only I can forgive. Come to me, for only I can rescue you from the destruction which is to come. Come to me and live forever in paradise. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. That is Jesus' plea. He is so patient. He is so long-suffering. But the day of salvation... The day of his visitation will not last forever. Today is yet the day of salvation. Will you not come while it is still that day? Will you not come before the day of salvation turns to the day of destruction? God has come to visit. How will you respond? Father, we pray for any who have closed the door to Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would, even now, through your word, change hearts. That you would bring conviction of sin and that you would create father faith save this day father and do it 
Even for those, Father, who may be listening far into the future. May they hear your voice in your word and be saved. For Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen.